As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast where we'll try to think through just that. How can Christians engage with questions of life, death and everything else in between? My name is Tim Wyatt and every episode I call up my dad, John Wyatt, to discuss issues in healthcare, ethics, technology, science, faith and more. I'm a religious and social affairs journalist, while he is a doctor, a professor of ethics and a writer and speaker on these issues. In other words, he's the expert, but I'm here to ask the stupid questions, and hopefully some not so stupid, that help make sense of it all. This episode is the second part of our conversation on technology during the coronavirus pandemic. If you haven't yet listened to the first half, do go back to check that out before you crack on with this episode. Today, John and I look into our crystal balls and try to imagine what the world of tech will look like in the future thanks to COVID-19. Are the major tech companies in America emerging from the crisis stronger than ever? Will coronavirus accelerate the rise of artificial intelligence and robotics in healthcare? And has the modernist pro-science movement struck a lasting blow in the battle of ideas against the anti-expert populists? Welcome back again, uh, John. Thanks for dialing in again. Last time we we started our conversation around looking at how technology intersects with the COVID pandemic. Um, we we touched on uh, contact tracing and using um, digital communications for surveillance, often in quite invasive ways, and how people might be increasingly desensitised to that. But also some of the positive aspects of this surge and this boom, this acceleration of our digital lives. Um, Today, I thought we we wanted to move on and look a bit more about what some of the lasting effects might be in the future. Um, one thing we touched on before is the contact tracing is the idea that, that the big US tech companies, your Googles, your Facebooks, your Amazons, have all jumped into this kind of gung-ho. Um, what impacts might that have, do you think? It is very striking how well the uh, US tech companies are coping and and flourishing uh, during the pandemic, I mean, of course, even before the pandemic, the, these big companies—Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Netflix, and so on—were showing an astonishing rate of growth and uh, success. And um, although they've had a temporary uh, setback in terms of their share value, again, it's striking how rapidly they are rebounding and. 
I fear that one of the effects of the pandemic is to just entrench the power, particularly of the American uh, big tech giants. Um, and uh, what these companies um, depend on is what is technically called the network effect. And, and this is the fact that in any information network, uh, the number of connections you have um, contributes to the power of the network actually in, in an exponential rate. So, that, so as the number of connections within a network grows, the power of the information within that network grows exponentially. And uh, this is what Google and Facebook and Amazon and so on are building on this extraordinary dominance. Of course, we are seeing some other uh, Chinese companies that are also um, entering this and, and showing, um, again, very rapid growth. Uh, and there's been quite a lot of interest about TikTok, a social media company, which is a Chinese in origin, but which has now uh, grown very rapidly uh, in, in the social media world. And there are other uh, huge uh, Chinese companies, Alibaba and Tencent, who um, similarly, I think, are having a, 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 their growth is, is, if anything, being accelerated because of the coronavirus pandemic. Mm. And you can see how, because there were growing calls from some parts in the US, even, you know, presidential contenders like Elizabeth Warren, who was saying it's time to break up the big US tech companies. There's too much power is entrenched in too few hands and it's having these kind of harmful, distorting effects. But it's hard to make that case, isn't it, when we're all relying on the incredible logistics superpower that is Amazon because we're buying everything online because we can't go to shops. Or it's hard to make the case that the agglomeration of WhatsApp, Facebook and Instagram under a single leadership is harmful when they're using that to promote kind of government public health messages or even when Google and Amazon and Apple are baking into the hardware of their new phones, um, Bluetooth contact tracing it does feel like it's a bit of a setback for people's hopes if they're trying to kind of use traditional means to to uh, break up some of these monopolies and, and re reduce their power. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid you're right. And I was certainly one of the people, like many, who were joining the chorus of saying we have got to regulate these these companies and find ways of of limiting the, the power. And uh, there have been, uh, over the last few years, some, some excellent uh, investigative uh, research into the ways that these uh, tech giants in uh, Silicon Valley and so on how operate and, and how this, uh, what's now often called surveillance capitalism, how that very uh, extraordinarily new financial model, how it works. Um, so I, I don't think those questions are going to go away. I think they are, you're right that they are being temporarily silenced and that um, the tech companies are using this opportunity to just increase their dominance. Um, I think as the acute crisis starts to diminish, those voices will come back, uh, and particularly in Europe. So Europe is is the place globally where the deepest concerns about the dominance of the tech companies is being voiced. And... Uh, there's no doubt that that, that will continue, and in, including not just in the tech giants, but also in the applications of artificial intelligence and robotics. Hmm. 
do you, do you think there's going to be a shift where these massive companies, which are in many cases the richest companies in the world, will see healthcare as a massive platform for them to move into? We haven't seen that much integration or or kind of invasion of the healthcare zone industry, whatever you want to call it, by these tech companies. Is the pandemic going to accelerate some of their tentative moves into that area? I think it is. And, and we are seeing, there's no doubt that... Um, these companies see health, particularly in the USA, but of course across the world, they see the health market as an absolutely enormous source of future profits. And um, and therefore, there there is a lot of interest uh, in the tech companies in uh, entrenching their position within, within healthcare and um, particularly using their expertise in terms of logistics. I mean, you know, it, it is a contrast, isn't it? I mean, you think how well Amazon works, so the astonishing accuracy that that you can select some sort of small item on a website and do a few clicks and, and literally the following day, sometimes within hours, that precise item appears almost unfailingly at your doorstep and you compare that expertise in logistics with the way that health systems work across the world uh, and there's just no comparison you know if that logistical expertise was applied to the national health service um we it would be transformative uh, but of course it would come with a price tag and i i think uh, these issues um are going to be of, of, of major importance for the future. But but what the pandemic does is it just accentuates in everybody's minds, and of course in government's minds, it accentuates the absolute centrality of healthcare in a modern economy. And also, in a way, in a materialistic world, as, as in, a, in a secular society, as we lose our belief in transcendent values, in, in um, supernatural and transcendent forces then then it's bodily health which becomes the supreme good and investing in bodily health investing in health systems um is a no-brainer and i guess there's another aspect here which is that you know two parts of of the tech kind of revolution where it's really pushing forward right now is artificial intelligence and robotics and those are two areas which actually dovetail quite neatly and quite obviously into healthcare we've seen huge advances in things like training AIs to try and recognize cancer and scans and that kind of thing and I guess in a world in which physical contact is ever more uh, potentially dangerous using AI and robotics in healthcare infection risk-free you know no human-to-human contact is only going to become more appealing. Yes that's a bizarre kind of unintended consequence isn't it that uh, and one of the really strange and sad things about the pandemic is that what we used to think was a really wonderful thing and I as a healthcare professional have always emphasized the importance of physical touch and of of face-to-face communication uh, and um, this kind of uh, being the hands of a carer being the hands of Jesus as we reach out to other people now um, this physical contact this uh, this touch this presence has suddenly become a threat and we we regard the other person's body as, as being a source of potential lethal infection and and that's a, a terrible evil 
uh, I'm afraid, which is going to stay with us, I think, for years to come, this, this sense of threat that other people represent. You already see that on the street, don't you, when you're just walking along the street and somebody is coming the other way and they suddenly flinch and cower into the in, into the out of you away because they just perceive you as a threat. So the argument, therefore, that by minimizing human to human contact, by using all these virtual tools, uh, by using uh, AI and robotics, uh, we're minimizing the risk. You know, that, that argument becomes much more powerful. And it's fascinating as well, because I think people used to say, or I used to believe as well, that that humans would 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 always shy away from the idea. Would you rather be examined by a human being or by some creepy metallic robot that slips into the uncanny valley and makes you give you a kind of chill down the back of your spine? But actually, maybe that whole calculus has been flipped on its head, as you say. People might be able to put aside their disquiet at the kind of impersonalness if you know that this is a completely sterile environment and there is absolutely no COVID in this consulting room. It's just a steel robot and you. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it's um, having said that, again, you know, human beings, the fundamental nature of our humanity is not going to change. Um, you know, there is an essential characteristics. There are essential characteristics about what it means to be human. And one of them is that we are hardwired for physical intimacy and for physical touch. And, um, you know, there's a lot of neuroscience, growing neuroscience evidence of the, of the, you know, of what we already know, that physical touch and physical intimacy is an incredibly important part of our humanity. And that isn't going to go away. Uh, so I, I, I think um, one of the interesting ideas about uh, a Christian understanding of, of creation order, of, of the way that God has created the natural order, and that natural order includes the, um, the physical universe out there, but it also includes our body. Our bodies are part of the natural order. And the idea is that the natural order ha has within it an extraordinary resilience um, against being manipulated or deformed. I sometimes think of it as a bit like one of those squeezy rubber balls. You know, you can take a squeezy rubber ball, you can distort it and deform it into the most amazing shape. But as soon as you release your hand, ping, it slips back and it's a wall again, it's a sphere. Because it has this intrinsic resilience within it. And our human nature is like that. It has an, an innate human resilience uh, from the creation order. And however much it's distorted by pandemics, by fears, by technology and so on, our fundamental humanity will restore itself and, and reveal itself because that's the way we're made. Hmm. Is that connected? Do you think this idea of being made in the image of God, that we we fundamentally cannot be taken too far away from that image by the created order because it's there's something bigger and stronger and you know running through us like that stick of brighton rock yeah i think i think that's right and, and it, it it's it, it's part of what it means to be made in god's image but it, it's it's also part it, it, it's in the the whole idea of the creation because it's not only true of our humanity it's also true of other things you know the essential nature of a tree the essential nature of the ocean the essential nature of an animal, these these things are are hardwired into the way we are. And um, interestingly, in 
in the in in the future the way the biblical narrative regards it as it uses the picture paul uses this picture of of the seed and the fully grown uh, plant so when he's talking about the new heaven and the new earth he, and about our new bodies, he says that our bodies are sown in this particular form here and now, but they're raised in a, in a different form. And I'm absolutely fascinated by that analogy because the interesting thing is that the, the connection between the seed and the ultimate plant is, of course, very, very profound because the seed carries within it all the information that goes to make up. The beautiful plant and so as we look to the future it's not that our humanity is going to be deformed or lost even by terrible things like pandemic or even by potentially good things like technology but what is going to happen uh, we are promised is that our technology is going to become our humanity is going to become fulfilled it is we are going to discover the new kind of humanity and of course, in Christian thinking, it's Jesus himself who is the forerunner. He's the first one who is giving us a picture of what is to come. The other thing we wanted to touch on is this idea of there being an intellectual battle of ideas that was already underway long before the pandemic arose, between two rough sides of, I suppose, uh, modernism, pro-science, pro-technological thinking, and a kind of populist revolt against experts. Um, how do you see the pandemic and its long-term effects on technology playing into that um, kind of decades-long struggle? Yeah, this is a fascinating um aspect of it all and of course we're living in the middle of this huge dislocation and, and it's possible only you know historians looking back decades to come will be able to trace the impact of of the pandemic on the way that people thought um, but I I am very struck by the way that um, the kind of particularly the postmodern narratives which we often hear um, you know that there is no such thing as absolute truth that uh, we're all inventing our own views of reality we're all free to create ourselves and make ourselves whatever we want um, those kind of very postmodern ideas which have always been in conflict with the the modernist ideas of there being a scientific truth and of scientific methodology and scientific expertise and so on. Um, I, as I look at this, I, I think that what has happened is those postmodern ideas have been very much suppressed during the pandemic. And instead, everybody's saying, well, what's the evidence? What's the science telling us? Who are the experts in this field? How can they guide us? The politicians are, are turning to experts. Um, uh, lay people are wanting to inform themselves about epidemiology and R naught and um, all, all these different aspects of of the virus. So I I see it as a big uh, shift towards the modernist pro science pro technology thinking and away 
from the postmodern narratives, uh, which have often fed the kind of populist revolt against expertise. Now, whether this is a purely a temporary thing and whether it will swing back, I have a suspicion that, that future historians will look back and say, actually, this was a point at which uh, the dominance of science was and technology was actually further enframed in our societies. Hmm. I think you can definitely see that on the in the political realm, where um, for the last I don't know four or five maybe longer years there has been a, a swing towards you know what some people call simplism, the idea that the world complex problems in the world have simple solutions and that we can dispense with your kind of milk toast hand wringing isn't it all complex and you know trying to find the the best of a bad options and actually there is a single great leap of liberation or freedom uh out of our problems towards a brighter future and if and i think the pandemic has really emphasized the fact that the world is complex and therefore it has there are no simple solutions. And that, as you say, we are having to fall back on, you know, this committee of scientists who are almost running the country now as they try and dig into the data and come to some consensus on conflicting studies and, and figure out at this rapidly changing moment, you know, we don't want tub-thumping demagogues and populists. Everyone, as you say, is is falling back on people who actually have, you know, letters and numbers after their name and who who have got proven track records of of um, quietly getting on with, with high-level academic study. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, as previously mentioned, there's also something about the materialism of our, of our modern age. Um, and in a materialistic culture, health becomes the supreme good and disease the ultimate threat um, and and so the fear of death from infection uh, rate this deep deep fear existential fear uh, pushes people towards uh, a preoccupation with health and um, and of course, and that's why governments, for instance, are prepared to 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 wreak absolute economic havoc and take on massive debts, which is going to take decades to pay back, because the health card uh, trumps everything else, and um, the fear of death uh, and and the fear of watching loved ones die is so powerful, but particularly in a materialistic culture. So, so. Previous cultures have always said that health was important, but that there were some things that were even more important um, than health, that, that uh, family relationships, that, that showing love and faithfulness and so on uh, at times, and courage and self-sacrifice, these things were even more important than health. But in a materialistic culture, often those values are subsumed under the most important thing, which is to look after my bodily integrity and that of my loved ones but isn't that quite problematic to the christian mind and the christian worldview because it becomes very easily becomes intensely selfish because you can basically justify anything if it builds up your own health and you see you know maybe the epitome of this is silicon valley billionaires fritting their fortunes away on research trying to extend their lives by another five or ten years rather than spending that money for the common good no, I, I think it is very problematic. Um, and, and I think that often Christians are much more infected by the secular thinking than they realise. 
you know, it, it's part of the medicalization um, of of our society. And, you know, it's something I've talked and written about in the past about the medicalization of dying, that, that instead of seeing dying well as an opportunity to prepare ourselves for the next stage of the journey, in, in a medicalized uh, society, death is the ultimate enemy and we do everything possible to, to keep death at bay. We fight and we struggle and we go through horrendous medical treatments just to try and hold death back. And, and I think the pandemic has, um, has brought those fears to the fore and that many Christian people, have, I'm afraid, have been infected by those fears. I, I was on a call a couple of weeks ago with um, a whole group of people who were concerned with care of the elderly uh, in our society during the epidemic. And, and they were saying that many single old people have retired into their homes uh, and are basically cowering with fear and are saying, I don't think I'm ever going to come out of my house because I'm just terrified of catching an infection. And there, there's something intensely sad about that and, and, and life-denying that the, the, the final months and years of, of many people may be, may be spent just cowering in isolation and terrified of getting an infection. And is the gospel response, therefore, to be calling people to mind and say, actually, death is not the absolute evil, at least not for those who are in Christ, because we're not supposed to live our lives carrying in fear and doing everything we can at any cost to extend by another day, week or month. Actually, risk is inherent, but we believe in someone who's conquered death and somehow we need to be sharing a message of I don't know what would you call that courage taking life taking accepting life bears risks rather than rather than um reorientating our entire thinking around how to minimize risks saying actually we put our trust in the one who has gone through death and come out the other side yeah i think that's absolutely right and actually i think this is a theme i'd like to pick up in a in a future podcast but i i think um the idea that we have to help people to <clears throat> to see that as you say that the, the the virtue of courage and the virtue of, of putting other people first, even at the, the possible risks to our own safety, that this is something that is at the heart of, of the Christian faith. And that fear, operating out of fear, is always a, a negative thing. Fear, you know, is, is always a damaging and, and, and uh, unhealthy emotion. I mean, the only fear which is a healthy fear in Christian thinking, is the fear of God. And of course, that isn't really fear at all. That's reverence and respect for, for God. But, but human fears are, uh, are fundamentally life-destroying uh, and something which we should fight against. And so, yes, we have to be wise. We have to act prudently. We don't throw our lives away. But we accept that if we're going to live the lives that God has given us, that that will involve an element of risk. Thank you for listening to this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you'd like to dig deeper into some of the things we've talked about, you can find lots more to read, listen and watch at John's website. He's uploaded resources on everything from assisted suicide to the big picture narrative of the Bible to artificial intelligence, 
all free to access and share. Please visit johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. The music in the show is by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. At a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.